Last Lord's Day, we worked our way through 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. And if you were with us for that exposition, you know that we focused upon that last phrase, standing fast in the Lord. Standing fast in the Lord. You'll see that there in verse 8. This, I said last time, is none other than the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. What do we, what do we mean by this doctrine? If you weren't with us and we clarified and defined this concept of the perseverance of the saints, this is what this doctrine means. When a person is elected to salvation through faith by the grace of God, of course, he or she will continue to persevere in that faith through the very same grace of God. That's what this doctrine means. But of course, having said this, we can't assume that this persevering of the faith of the believer does not mean that he or she can just cease to be actively persevering, as though we can put ourselves on autopilot and allow the Holy Spirit to keep living His life through us. In other words, it's a synergistic work. That may be a new word for you, uh, some of you, that idea of synergism. I have mentioned before from the pulpit another word, monergism. Mono, of course, the word one or only, and the idea of energy, the idea that God alone is the one who loves us first, who regenerates our hearts so that we can choose Christ, and we do if that regeneration happens, but that's a monergistic work. That's only what God does by His initiating power, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's the word monergism that helps us defend the idea of the doctrine of justification, that I am just before God or declared righteous before God, not by anything I do, not by any works that I contribute. It's a monergistic work of God. He initiates coming into my life. He, like uh, Lazarus in the tomb, does Jesus say, come out. And Lazarus comes out, though he be dead. He's raised to life. I'm regenerated to new life. That's all the work of God. It's monergism. It's monergistic. However, when we are then declared justified by God, God then takes us at that immediate moment upon our justification, upon our being declared not guilty, righteous in God's sight by the very righteousness of Christ, God immediately begins to transform our life with our cooperation. We begin immediately to have new thoughts, new desires, new aspirations. We begin to want to do the things that we never did before, and we are continually loosed from those things for which we were enslaved. And that's why we call this a synergistic work of God, because it is the synergy. Uh, The little word soon looks like S-Y-N in the Greek text, and it's the word soon, which means with or together with. And the energy of working together, God and man, produces sanctification within the believer. That's why we have no problem saying that while justification is something for which you and I don't participate, it's all the work of God. It is something that God declares about us We can just as easily say, and the very moment that we are declared righteous in Christ, God begins to change us from that moment forward, and we are so changed that we persevere in the faith to the very end. 
This is what God does. This is God's gift of grace to us. And it's the same grace that not only is at work in regenerating our dead souls, our lifeless hearts, to be able to be rendered as not guilty by God on the basis of Christ's cross, on the basis of Christ's righteousness. It is that same grace of God that is operative in the synergistic work of the Holy Spirit taking us with our cooperation and with our work and with our effort so that that grace of God is still operating in us all the way to the end. All the way to the end. Now, this is a beautiful biblical balance. And I'm going to be using that phrase, beautiful biblical balance, about 15 times today. Because I want us to see from the very pages of Scripture, particularly here in 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 9 to 3, this beautiful biblical balance between what God is doing in our lives and with what we at the very same time are doing in our lives. And I want you to see this. You might not have even seen this from the verses that we're going to cover this morning that we read a moment ago. Let me read them to you again. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 9 to 13. This is our text. This is what we'll study this morning, and it is so helpful. The Apostle Paul says in verse 9, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith? Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now you may be Asking, having read this together with me this morning, how a Pauline prayer here in 1 Thessalonians 3 relates to the perseverance of the saints by and through God's power, and how can that now also relate additionally to God's will and God's purposes and God's plan in unison with our prayers? Well, it most certainly does. Let me show you how this can very necessarily be a picture of of beautiful biblical balance. I want you to see this in bold relief. I want you to see how the Apostle Paul's prayers can be something that you and I can replicate. Replicate, you know, a replica. You see the way the Apostle Paul is praying, and you can take that as a model for your own prayers. Not, not, just, not just the words that he speaks, but the balance that he gives. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful balance. And I want to show you first in verses 9 and 10, and then in verses 11, 12, and 13, two principles or two ways to see this beautiful biblical balance. And in this case, between the balance of prayer and hard work. The balance of prayer and hard work. Let me give you the first one. Let's call this earnest prayer and faithful discipleship. And this is the balance. Earnest prayer and faithful discipleship. Look back at verses 9 and 10. For what thanksgiving, Paul says, can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray. Notice that. And as we pray most earnestly, he says, and as he says, we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Do you see the balance here? Do you see what Scripture is teaching us here? Now, I know we're all prone to do something like this. Taking your Bibles 
and you're reading it, perhaps you're reading it devotionally, perhaps you're reading through 1 Thessalonians uh, because we're doing our exposition of it, and perhaps you're, you're doing it every day or, or perhaps once a week or maybe in preparation on a Sunday for uh, the message, and you're reading through 1 Thessalonians, and I'm like you. I, I can read, but sometimes not always work at comprehending. I'm, I'm reading 1 Thessalonians, and already in three places, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and now 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul says, we thank God for you constantly. And you and I would say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've read that. I get that. I've got that. Let's move on. But if you were to just pause and ask yourself the question, not only what is he praying for, but the earnestness of his prayer. He says in chapter 1, does he not, that he prays always for all of you, chapter 1, verse 2, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Constantly. Your alternative translation might be, or without ceasing. And he says the same thing in chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly or without ceasing for this that you received the gospel. And now he says, yet again, here in chapter 3, verse 9, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day. Now that's different, of course, than unceasingly or constantly. Now he's adding this concept of earnestness in your prayers. Earnest prayer. What does that mean? Well, of course, it means you're committed to it. You're committed to prayer. Now, of course, you've heard it said, and it is true, and it bears repeating, that the chief means of grace in the Christian's life are twofold, right at the top of the list, among many other graces, the Word of God and prayer, right? The Word of God and prayer. Now, it's, it's labor to continue to read the Word of God together. It's labor-intensive to do it alone, all by yourself, or with a few. And if you're like me, and I assume you are, it's even harder to pray and to pray consistently and to pray earnestly. Now, some of you say, that's not hard for me. I, I, I'm, I'm in the attitude of prayer all the time. That's good. But there are so many things that, that hit against us in the flow of life that sometimes don't always allow us to be thinking or to be in an attitude of prayer. And yet Paul is such a model for us in this, isn't he? He's, he's constantly, he says, unceasingly and earnestly praying for these believers. And he says it in virtually every one of his letters. And, might I add, that he's doing so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he writes, which means the Holy Spirit wouldn't allow Paul to lie on the pages of Scripture about his conduct, right? So it means that what he's saying through his written ministry to them is true. He's earnestly praying. Prayer is vital. What may not be so apparent here in this text of Scripture is the beautiful balance of both prayer and discipleship. Discipleship. Faithful discipleship. You say, how so? Well, what is Paul praying about? What's he praying about? I mean, he's praying about something very specific. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? Paul, the apostle of thanksgiving, he's always giving thanks. For all the joy, he's already mentioned joy. He's the apostle of joy in addition to being the apostle of thanksgiving. And he feels such joy for the sake of the Thessalonians before our God, which means he's praying earnestly for them. 
and he's praying night and day in his earnestness. That doesn't mean that he never sleeps. That doesn't mean that he never does anything during the day. That means that he is in a conscious attitude either by night or day in earnestly praying for these believers. And what does he pray for? Notice what it says there in verse 10. That so that in order that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. I mean, the, the, the beautiful balance is on one side, earnest prayer. The biblical balance on the other side, faithful discipleship. He's praying to God so that he would be successful in getting back there so that he could see these Thessalonians face to face so that he can be an instrument used by God in their faith. He's committed to them. Is that, is that fairly evident from the text? He's committed to them. He's so other-centered that he continues to pray for them. Now, he does say in his letters, pray for me. Pray for me that God would give me a, a word of exhortation or, or an evangelistic opportunity. And he prays and he asks for them to pray for him in a number of ways. But far outstripping the number of times he says, pray for me or pray for us, he's saying, I'm praying for you. Far outnumber. He's so other-centered. And there's this beautiful balance. You might not see it here, but it's here. He says, before our God. That means he's praying, which means he's totally dependent upon the Lord for getting back to them. So he's asking God for it. And he wants to get back to them, and he's not omniscient, and he doesn't know if he's going to be able to do that, so what does he do? He goes right to the Father through Christ, and he asks for a way back. He's totally dependent. And if God doesn't grant that request, he will not get back to them. If you don't pray, if you don't earnestly pray for all the needs of your life, for for the ministry that you want in other people's lives, it will not happen. You know that that means that God uses as an instrumental means prayer for the providence of God and what happens in your life and mine. It's it's actually the instrumental means, this prayer life of ours, which means it's so crucial that you and I must pray earnestly night and day, always being in a conscious fellowship with the Lord of prayer so that you and I are busy about the work of supplying what is lacking in other people's faith. Now, now, of course, there are those who believe so much in prayer, but then they expect God to do it all. Lord, I pray that you would help so-and-so. I pray that you would, would answer my prayers because I want to be other-centered in my prayers, and I want you to pray for so-and-so that they'd get their life right, that they would be obedient that they would do the right things, that they would respond in righteousness and holiness. Lord, I pray that that would be true of so-and-so. But do you know the beautiful biblical balance here is that he's not only praying earnestly night and day for them, he wants to get back to them so that God would use him face-to-face in their lives. Face-to-face. Right there. Hugging one another loving one another, teaching one another, admonishing one another, gripped by one another's presence, by the holy fellowship of actually being together. And that, my friends, is faithful discipleship, very faithful discipleship. Why? Because notice how he says it, to supply what is lacking in your faith. Do you know that The Bible teaches us in no uncertain terms 
that you and I will persevere all the way to the end. But the instrumental means is not only prayer, but the work of others in your life and mine. It's a beautiful balance, isn't it? I'm so dependent of God. I'm so incredibly dependent upon His will, His plan to get me back to the Thessalonians. But when I get there, if He wills it so, I've got to be involved in the process of supplying what they lack. I have to be used in their lives. It's not just praying for you, praying for you. It's how can I help? What do you need? Can we do a Bible study together? I write a scriptural encouragement to them. I may supply them with the lack of funds. I may help them around the house. I may need to do any number of things in faithful discipleship so that this earnest prayer is in God's economy, God's providence answered and I am now standing face to face in front of them. That's his earnest prayer. That that should be our kind of prayer. And he says, I'm so thankful. Doesn't he, doesn't he also say that before? Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. Here it is, to establish, that means to strengthen and exhort you in your faith that no one would be moved or shaken by these afflictions. And you say, why are are you harping on this, this beautiful biblical balance? Well, it's because at times, even we who affirm the marvelous doctrines of God's grace can become somewhat fatalistic. We can overcorrect. We can have a an overbalance, shall we say, on the sovereignty side. We can say, well, Lord, I, I, I know what needs to happen in their lives. I know what changes need to be made. I'm just praying that, that you'll figure out a way to make them. That's, that's an overcorrection. That's an overbalance. That's an unbalanced way. It's, it's prayer. It's earnest prayer. It's a ever-awakening consciousness of prayer night and day so that I can get there and get to work. The, the synergistic work of fellow believers around me who are encouraging me. I was at a breakfast this week with one of our church members whom I love. And I was greatly encouraged by them in my faith. And I sought to be a great encouragement in their faith. Now, these are not the kinds of times where we can just so freely move in and through uh, our lives together, which means we actually have to be even more concentrated, right? Perhaps it's more on the phone. Perhaps it's more on a computer. Perhaps it's more uh, with texting. Whatever it may be, it's it's a way to have this beautiful biblical balance of earnest prayer and faithful discipleship, which means I'm, I'm praying so as to encourage. That's, that's the way we want to see it, right? I'm praying so as to encourage. You can't assume fatalistically that, that since God is sovereign and will bring about His purposes in our lives so that we must just be inert, just waiting for it to happen, waiting for the zap. I'm just waiting for God to do what he's going to do. God says, here's what I'm going to do. Through your prayers, I'll answer such a prayer so that you can get busy. That's, That's what he's talking about. Paul's proving right here in this text that prayer is vital. But what also is vital in this beautiful biblical balance is that he wants to supply what is lacking in their faith. Paul is praying that God will allow his ministry partners to to be seen again by him 
face-to-face so that he can continue to personally disciple them further in the matters that are vital to their perseverance. In fact, he's so concerned about them that he's just said, I'm concerned that the tempter, chapter 3, verse 5, would have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He believes prayer is vital. He believes Satan is real. He believes spiritual warfare is at every turn, and he believes that God can and does answer prayer, including the possibility, if not the reality, that I will be with them again so that I can supply what's lacking in their faith so that they can persevere all the way to the end and that their labor would not be in vain. I mean, what, what a great prayer. You know, people often say to me as a pastor, you know, I find it difficult to pray. I, I find that, you know, I, I, I pray the sentences that are coming to my mind, and then I run out of sentences. You know, my answer to that is, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. I mean, our extemporaneous prayers, right, just sort of prayers on the moment. Um, it's not scripted. I haven't written anything out. I'm just sort of praying. I'm just sort of, and then, and then, my mind goes blank, or I think about something else, or, and so I think, well, should I write something out? Should I, should I, you know, sort of type something? No, that seems clinical. Uh, no, I'll just keep at it. Come on, Lance, focus, focus. And then I found a number of years ago the opportunity to do something like this, pray Scripture, pray Scripture, pray scriptural prayers, because they're prayers. And if you and I can pray scriptural prayers, perhaps we're doing two things at once. We are leaning on the Word of God and praying at the same time, the chief means of grace. So, at your next opportunity, with this beautiful biblical balance, pray in your earnestness, in your commitment, in your unceasing desire to pray for fellow Christians who, by the way, they are also praying for you and they're also wanting to supply what's lacking in your faith just as you are earnestly trying to supply what's lacking in their faith. And when you pray these scriptural prayers, then perhaps those scriptural prayers, because they are the very prayers of the scriptural record, can be most honored and answered by our Lord. I mean, what an opportunity. You you can't go wrong by praying scriptural prayers. When your words run out, use Paul's. Right? And, And that's the balance on the prayer side. That's the vitality and the relationship of dependency on the prayer side. That's the balance. That's the, that's the clear and delicate balance on that side. But let's go over here. Let's talk about faithful discipleship. And remember, we're talking about the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And if you would, turn over in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And I'm going to show you this balance again. And I'm going to show you the balance in one verse. In one verse, chapter 2, verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only beautiful biblical in my presence, but much more in my absence, here's, here's this beautiful biblical balance, here it is, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, don't be alarmed. It's not talking about salvation by works. It's talking about work out your sanctification aspect of your salvation, okay? You've been declared righteous before God because of the righteousness of Christ. Now, in the sanctification part of your salvation, the the synergism is this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, phobos and traumas. It's going to be hard. It's going to be really hard. You're going to be fighting against everything, fighting against Satan, fighting against his minions, fighting against the world, fighting against your own remaining sin. But notice verse 13, for it is God who 
What's the next word? Works. Works in you. Now, somebody's going to immediately say, oh, good, I can lay back. No, because he just said, work it out, and he's referring to you, not anybody else but you, you church, you Philippians, you Bethany Bible Church, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. See the biblical balance there? The beautiful biblical balance is you've got to work at it because it's God who is at work in you. And He's going to be at work in you to the degree. Look at chapter 1 of Philippians verse 6. And I am sure of this, Paul says, that He, speaking of God, who began a good work in you, there's that work idea again, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's going to happen. If you're truly His, that work is unrelenting. Now, it's painful. It's really painful because He is shaving off the edges, the crusty edges of our remaining sin in our lives. It's hard. It's really hard. And yet, God is at work in you. And the God who created the universe knows how to work in you. He knows all your proclivities. He knows all your failures, all your weaknesses, all your challenges, all your sin, all your lusts. He he knows them all, and He's at work in you to will and to work for His good pleasure to conform you to the image of His Son. Now, this this is a beautiful balance. And you know how we ought to respond to this? Replicate Paul's prayers. Replicate his prayers. Replicate his words. Use them as a, a replica for your life. And, and when you see that earnest prayer is a wonderful balance with faithful discipleship, then you're on the road, my friends, to a very exciting Christian experience. You will be. You are. It's hard. But it's gloriously hard. It really is. It's exciting, though hard. It's dynamic, though difficult. It's glorious and wonderful to trust God through your prayers, even as someone is praying for you and who shows up to supply what is lacking in your faith. That's why we need the body of Christ. That's why we need this local church. And when you have earnest prayer, beautifully balanced with faithful discipleship, you are on your way to a dynamic Christian life. Number two, number two, not just earnest prayer and faithful discipleship, he doubles down, does Paul, through focused prayer and holy living. Focused prayer and holy living. Look at verses 11, 12, and 13. Of 1 Thess 3. Now, may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus. Stop right there. Do you notice that Paul has no problem at all putting God the Father Himself and the Lord Jesus on the same spiritual plane? You see this? He's praying to the Lord Jesus. That's not a problem for Jews of the first century. That's not a problem at all. It's not a problem for Paul. Why? Because undergirding his prayer is the theological and experiential acknowledgement that God the Father and God the Son are one. He has no problem saying, now, this is my prayer, this is Paul's prayer, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus And it's what we might call a wish prayer. It's a wish prayer, right? It's not not Paul stopping and pausing to pray, now my father I pray. He's telling the Thessalonians what his wish is for them, but it's a prayer. 
Because he says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. I'm I'm wish-praying that I could get back to you, that I may be directed to you. And he knows only God can superintend that direction. Only God can bring it to pass. In the book of Acts, when Paul wanted to go to these very areas, the Holy Spirit said, not now. Not now. And then there was this Macedonian call in a vision, go now. And he also knows that Satan was hindering his opportunity to go to evangelize these mainly pagan Gentile people. And even in the midst of the hindrancing of this very evangelistic opportunity, driving Paul and his associates out, he still wants to get back there. And so he knows, Satan's trying to hinder me. I want God to give me, circumstantially and providentially, the opportunity, the green light, to go back, and I'm praying that God would direct my way back to you. That's what I call focused prayer. That's a focused prayer, isn't it? It's it's, it's asking God for something very specific, and I don't see anything wrong with that. Now, some of you may say, yes, and I've been praying for that Cadillac for years. That BMW, I've been praying for that. It just has never happened. Well, perhaps the focus of your prayer might be a little off. If, however, you were saying... Lord, I don't care by any means the transportation that will get me to a place where I'm supplying someone else's lacking faith. Do you have a donkey? A a donkey would be okay. That would suffice. It It doesn't matter the vehicular means by which I'm supplying that lacking faith. So I'm focused in this. I want you to give me the green light. Will you be so kind in my wish prayer to grant it? And in the English text, notice that it says, may our God direct me to you. There's there's a kind of humility there, isn't there? May our God do this. He's not demanding. You know, one of the great sorrows of so much of the charismatic movement is they don't say may, they demand. They demand that God does this or that. Be careful of such prayers. Rather, say, may our God direct our way to you. This is focused prayer. This is, this is that beautiful balance. May the Lord Jesus direct. And you know, there's another here. May the Lord make. Do you see that in the text? May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. May the Lord direct. May God and the Lord Jesus direct. May the Father and the Son direct. And may the Lord, the Lord Jesus, that's who that reference to Lord is. May the Lord make. May the Lord make you do something. And you say, you see, that's my problem. It's, it's, the Lord is making me, but I don't want to. Well, watch out, because you're probably going to be under some fatherly discipline. Rather, you should say, I know I need to. I, 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 I want it to happen. So I'm asking you if you would make it happen in your providential circumstances and by your spirit-infused power. May it happen. May it take place. And, And what is he saying would take place? Well, it goes right to that beautiful biblical balance, holy living. You see it on this side? Holy living. What kind of holy living? Well, I would call this holy living on the micro level. The micro level. What is this? What does the text say? Here's here's what it says, that you would indeed have love. Yes, that you would have love. 
And that love would abound. Increasing love and abounding love. Do you see that there? That's, uh, that's what we would call progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. That it's moving in a progressive direction. Now look, there are going to be times where that direction seems stymied either by my sin, by the world's allurements, by Satan dogging our steps, of course. But I am praying. This is a wish prayer. And here's what I'm praying. That our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus would not only direct our way to you, but until we get there and as we are watching those providential prayers be answered, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. I believe what he means by and for all is all men. Love for the fellow believers in the church fellowship and love for all, which could be the very kind of love that draws other people to the gospel. And he says, as we do for you, as we also increase and abound in love for you. By the way, this is one of those one another's. You see it there? Abound in love for one another. And you know, without, without duplicates, my friends, and the duplicate of love one another is the most oft-repeated one another in the New Testament. There's at least five, if not more, love one another's in various ways that the text captures it. And without duplicates, like all of these one another's, but just each individual one another, there are over 45 in the New Testament. That's either who we are with one another, describing our state of being with one another, or what we're to do for and with one another. I'm working on a book on all the one another's because I think it's so neglected in the body of Christ. There's no Christian book. I know of no Christian book on the market that captures all the one another's in the New Testament, what they mean, what are their implications, how are we supposed to obey them, what are they telling us about our Christian life, either who we are or what we are to be. And this seems to me to be one of those great one another's because he picks the greatest of these and the greatest of these is love. This is what I'm calling a micro level now of holy living. This is the micro level. You say, what do you mean? Well, this is, this is Paul just taking one Christian attribute, just one, one Christian virtue, love. And he's saying, on the micro level, in my wish prayer to you, I'm praying that your love would increase and abound. And then on the macro level, look at verse 13. So that, here's this purpose clause again, so that he, he, the Father and the Son, probably here the Son, because that's the nearest antecedent, may the Lord make you increase and abound, so that he, Jesus, may establish, that's our word, strengthen, your hearts blameless in holiness. Now that, my friends, is a chore. Blameless in holiness? Blameless. That there's nothing in your life for which others around you, both in the body of Christ and outside, could blame you with blotches on your record. Not perfection. This is not talking about perfection. But it is talking about the direction of your life. And the direction of your life is, I want to be blameless in my holiness, both in my own individual relationship with Christ and in my relationship with the body and our collective relationship with Christ. And so when he says this, we have this beautiful biblical balance again to replicate. This is a focused praying, just like it was before, and earnest praying, and it was a faithful discipleship, and now we're just talking about on the macro level the totality of your spiritual life. And what is that totality of your spiritual life? That he may establish your hearts collectively now, the whole of the Thessalonian believers, blameless in holiness before our God and Father. That, I think, he's talking about not progressive sanctification, but definitive sanctification, ultimate sanctification. 
when you get there. That's that Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you, that's progressive sanctification, will complete it, that's definitive sanctification. That's when you get to the gates. That's when you cross the river of death and you get into the celestial city. That's when you go to glory. And how does he say we'll go to glory? Blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now, is this saints as in angels? Could be. Several times. The, the idea of saints, which could very much be better translated if it's referring to angels, holy ones. Holy ones. That's what saint means. It doesn't mean saint in a Catholic sense. It means holy person. Holy and blameless before our God and Father. That, that's when you're presented in your definitive sanctification at the end. And when you're presented, perhaps you're presented to Jesus as He comes in His second coming glory and you are seeing Jesus and all of His holy angels. Perhaps, though, when it says with all His saints... It's talking about the believers themselves. That's who we are, holy ones, right? He's just said, hearts blameless in holiness. And as you come, perhaps that could be a reference to what he's going to say in chapter 4 and in chapter 5 about our being taken to glory as Jesus is coming in his second coming glory. And perhaps this is the saints, all of us who are blameless in holiness, definitively sanctified, ultimate sanctification, and we're coming with Christ. text doesn't tell us explicitly. could be that. Or I like the third interpretation. It's us and the holy angels. I like that one. It's all of us. And we're coming to live in a kingdom in which our Lord Jesus is on the throne. That's, uh, that's the kind of blamelessness in holiness I want to be a part of. I want to see it. I want to experience it. I want to go there today. I want to go there. There was a young pastor in Houston, Texas about two weeks ago. Young man just in his early 30s, beautiful wife, four beautiful kids. You may have seen it. Southern Baptist Theological Seminary graduate, MDiv, commended by all of his professors as a genuine, loving, gracious, capable pastor. And he preached a sermon in which he entreated everyone to come to Jesus Christ, acknowledging his gospel, to be saved from the wrath to come, and to be on your way to heaven. And after that sermon, servant that he always was, according to those who love him, saw a lady distressed on the side of the road, got out of his car to assist her, and in a quote-unquote freakish accident, was killed by an 18-wheeler coming by. He's in heaven right now. He preached about people needing to go to heaven and then immediately went there. That would be the perfect capstone of today, wouldn't it? Now, I'm not asking you to pray for my demise. (laughs) But I am asking you, in your heart, to ask the question, am I living the biblical balance of earnest and focused prayer and the kind of 
faithful discipleship and holy living that allows this passage to so get into your soul that you're praying the right way and you're doing the right thing. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, this is a, this is a wonderful text that speaks to us of the clear and unshakable and beautiful balance of prayer and action. This is a kind of balance that we need to continue to pursue in our spiritual lives. To pray earnestly and in a focused way and to faithfully disciple others as we ourselves are pursuing holy living so that we would increase and abound in love for one another and that we would be so ready in our blamelessness in holiness that we would be ready to be welcomed by the Lord Jesus when He comes with all His saints. Oh, I pray that there would not be one person here who is without Christ. I pray that you would open their eyes to the truth that Jesus Christ is alive. He was dead. He was buried and raised again on the third day. And He is coming again. And for those of us who love His appearing and who are looking for His second coming glory. We say thank you for delivering us from the wrath to come. I pray that if you're here or however you're listening to this message, you would bow the knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and that you would pray not only for your own salvation, and sanctification, but you would also pray earnestly and in a focused way to reach out and disciple and nurture and exhort and encourage and strengthen and establish others so that they too, like you, would one day be blameless in holiness at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. May it be so. Lord Jesus, in your name we pray, amen.